0: For epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities, and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool.
1: We as doctors, we want to be really sure that every medication that is prescribed to people is helping them in a meaningful way, either to prolong life or make life better.
0: Now, lots of things can impact how and if a person with epilepsy takes them prescribed medications. So, we are going to be speaking about this with Samuel Terman, an epileptologist and researcher from the University of Michigan, US, who's done some really interesting research into adherence to medications, polypharmacy, deprescribing, and the high rate of multiple illnesses or disabilities amongst people with epilepsy. Sam also uses lingo that some people might not be overly familiar with. I confess I had to Google a couple of the words. Um, hence, we've added these to the Epilepsy Sparks glossary. Stay tuned to learn more. And if you'd like to learn more about epilepsy and epilepsy research each week for free, do subscribe to the channel. If you're already a fan of the channel, and we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. It makes a huge difference to us. Together, let us improve outreach, epilepsy awareness, understanding, and research. Hello, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please tell everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Thanks so much, Dory. My name is Dr. Sam Turman. I'm an epileptologist at the University of Michigan. I have a lot of interests mm-hmm. as I... I have uh, overwhelmed Tori with uh, 10 of my last papers. <laughs> I've given her some homework assignments to read.
0: Must read them. I, everyone else, I mean. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I have a lot of interests, one of which is um, health services outcomes, the processes and outcomes by which we take care of people with epilepsy. Uh, another one is about risk prediction. Um, you know, just predicting how effective is treatment day uh, versus no treatment. Um, so it's a lot of stuff that I think is... Really interesting and of practical importance. You kind of imagine, you know, if you're, you turn on the weather, you look to the weatherman for some predictions about is it going to rain today. <laughs> you uh, you need to understand kind of what's the probability of something good, something bad happening. You under, you know, kind of the analogy in my work is directly what's the chance that people are going to adhere to their medications? What's the chance that people are going to be readmitted to the hospital? What's the chance if I continue versus stop the seizure medicine that I'm going to have another seizure. So there are all kinds of these kind of prediction uh, elements to my work that I think uh, all kind of have practical implications about how you take care of people and what what should you be most and least worried about.
0: How much of your time is now spent in research versus with um, people with epilepsy?
1: It's about seventy-five percent research and twenty-five percent uh, clinical care that's split between reading EGS and seeing patients in the clinic, particularly in, in epilepsy clinic.
0: You mentioned to me beforehand in our in our previous chat polypharmacy, and that is something which, while I'm personally familiar with. I can't say I'm too um, happy with it necessarily. We have to weigh things up. But tell us about your paper into that.
1: So your response is, you know, is not not an unusual one. Um, there, so. Um, a little bit of background. Polypharmacy, um, it's a word that just means that you take, you know, people take lots of medications. And we as doctors and all patients, we're always trying to prioritize you know, what's the most important thing? There's no one ever who says, I wish I could take twice as many medications, you know. Um, There was actually a survey of older adults in the U.S. where they found um, about two-thirds of uh, older adults in the U.S said i wish i could take fewer medications uh, so and there are hundreds of thousands of emergency room visits a year for adverse reactions of medications um, their drug interactions between all the medications that we take and you know they have just all kinds of side effects potentially so um that said it's kind of a jekyll and hyde and <laughs> dr jekyll mr hyde moment you know because the medicines they have their downsides but there's so much good that you know medications treat so many things we have you know, blood pressure. You know, is very treatable, and mood and depression. So you can make a big difference in people's lives with treating them with the right medicines at the right time. So it can go good and go bad. But in terms of that kind of you know prediction um, stuff that I was talking about, I, I've done a couple papers about just quantifying how how many medications do people take mm. with people with epilepsy. How, um, how common is polypharmacy, how many medications do people take, how many prescribers do they have, just to kind of crystallize a bit of, you know, what's the current situation. And so, for example, I did one paper using Medicare data. Um, Medicare is the, the uh, U.S. Uh, public insurer that takes care of both older adults and also there are other ways that you can get in, like disability. Um, and so I studied 80,000... People with epilepsy that are in this database over a few years. Fair
0: number, <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, not bad. And um, they, the average number of medications that people were prescribed in a year was twelve.
0: That is nuts. Sorry, just to say, but that is.
1: <laughs> and the average wow. number of yeah. uniquely prescribing providers was five. Um, so. If you, you know, there are different ways, one common way of uh, categorizing polypharmacy is do you take at least five medications? It's out there in the literature and fully 90% of this population was prescribed at least five as compared to, you know, in, in Medicare population, it's an older, it's an, an a sicker population. So it's, I guess the, the general figure would be about half, um, so it's high, but, but 90% is greater than 50%. <laughs> Yay. Um, in addition, uh, I found that about one in five took an opioid medication. And after Capra being the number one med- most commonly prescribed medication, Norco was the number two prescribed medication, which is an opioid. Uh, and 60% of people took at least three central nervous system acting medications. So um, I was it's really kind of a, a wake-up call uh, the, the numbers are are somewhat alarming. They're somewhat less alarming if you look at the general population, and I and I have also done another similar study using the Nhanes database, which is a nationally representative U.S. population, not you know not oversampling older or disabled people, and it was still pretty high in the overall U.S. population. It was a smaller sample, but it was it was fifty percent there it took, took at least five medications. So at first view, it's it's kind of shocking, but as you think about it a bit more. You know, I think, well, you know, I take my seizure medication. Some people take two or three seizure medications. You know, depression, I take my antidepressant. I take my, you know, medications for pain. I take medication for blood pressure. I take medication. So it really adds up pretty quickly. But then it's just, you know, more and more and more. It's, I think there are some practical implications of this where we as doctors, we want to be really, Sure, that every medication that is prescribed to people is helping them in a meaningful way, either to prolong life or make life better, as opposed to kind of the just, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to add than subtract medications.
0: Sometimes the side effects can outweigh the potential benefits. And I think just taking people off medications for that reason or what we, we say to be the reason can be quite challenging for um, clinicians. Absolutely,
1: you know, sometimes the issue is, um, I don't feel like this is my medication to manage. You know, I have a really specific role in in a lot of patients' care, which is epilepsy. And then, you know, I just kind of take lots of other medications, and you know, but I'm not I'm not the main decider. Um, You know, but another main challenge is that sometimes you're kind of just comparing apples and oranges. Um, You're saying, well, I could take this and be less likely to have a seizure, or I can not take this and be less likely to have side effects, and it's a real it's a real, you know, I think this is just a common um, day-to-day challenge that we all face as, as people is just kind of weighing weighing these apples and oranges when it's kind of hard to make decisions. Well,
0: and a lot of us really are, like, if not the majority of us, are clinicians and aren't specifically trained in epileptology um, and psychiatry and everything else that goes with it. So we completely and utterly, no pressure, <laughs> rely upon you guys. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I mean, that, that. I can see that. I mean, I think that the other way, though, is that... Um, Sometimes patients, I kind of ask patients, you know, why are you taking this medication, and the, the response is, well, because my doctor prescribed it, and you know, that is that could be a you know a totally totally fair reason. But on the other hand, I just you know I get a little worried when I hear that response because I want to just make sure that a patient knows why they're on the medication and has some reasonable assurance that you know they believe that it's it's indeed helping them,
0: and that there is choice.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Tell us about the piece that you did on suddenly stopping medications or stopping medications in any way, shape, or form, and do no harm.
1: So, do no harm is you know doctors all recognize this term. We took the Hippocratic Oath, which is uh, you know, which is a text that you that you read and abide by when you enter the profession of medicine. And you know, we all, everyone believes that you know you you don't. We're all scared to. Do something that you feel like is gonna hurt the patient, um, but there's no free lunch, you know. I mean, you know, someone's going through epilepsy surgery. You know, clearly there's a lot of potential benefit, but it's also you know surgery, and it's there's a lot of so you know this do no harm concept. It must be balanced by uh, you know do no net harm. I guess that's the other <laughs> that's way of a saying good way it. You, put know, in. <laughs> you, know, you want to you want to be sure that the benefit outweighs the outweighs the potential downside and so specifically what what you're talking about is there this decision that has been interesting me is when to stop seizure medications because when people develop epilepsy the the standard treatment is to start an anti-seizure medication and tons and tons of choices um that you can start and the good news is that seizure medications are pretty effective kind of the the Standard numbers are about you'll, half of people with epilepsy, their seizures will be controlled by a single medication. And then in total, two-thirds of, medi- two-thirds of people with epilepsy, you'll control their seizures with medication. So that's fantastic. Um, and then the even better news is that people have done studies in terms of predicting if you have been cooled off for a while, you haven't had a seizure for a few years, If you stop seizure medications, what's the risk that you're going to have another seizure, even if you stop? You know, so like the best possible situation is, well, I've been stabilized. Um, There comes a time when maybe I don't need this forever. And so people have done risk estimates and said, well, maybe 30, 40% of people who have been seizure-free for a couple of years can come off their medicines and, and not have a seizure again, at least in the kind of the reasonable kind of you know medium medium term. So that's good news but still selecting those candidates is just it's it's hard, you know. Uh I, but I think it's such an interesting problem because you know problem number 1 is just the the percent like do I know what is the chance that you have a seizure if you continue versus if you stop your meds? And that's something that I'm actively uh researching. Um I'm doing some trial reanalysis. There's actually a um, the, the biggest trial that pertained to adults was done in the U.K. There are 40 centers and there are investigators in, are in Liverpool. Uh, and so it's the, the, you know, the biggest and, you know, perhaps the best study to date. And so I'm doing some reanalysis of that to try to get the best possible percentages um, of what's the risk of having another seizure if you stop versus if you don't. Um, have lots of other future plans uh, based on that so um but you know that's one element the next element that's involved in this is how do you want to receive that risk how do you manipulate that percent you know because if you tell someone your chances uh is 30 percent that's subtly different than your chance is uh three and ten or one in three you know which is different also what's
0: really important i think is for any patients that might be listening as well like Like we are also very different, so say, for instance, if I haven't had a seizure for two years and I'm considering coming off my antiseizure meds, that's very different to somebody else who hasn't had a seizure for two years and considering coming off their seizure medications. It's not one size fits all, all, right?
1: There's no one size fits all. I think that there's a um, a kind of guideline or there has been guidelines that patients with epilepsy, after they've been seizure-free for about two years, it might be reasonable to have the discussion Um, but everyone is so different, you know, some people will say, no, I'm, I'm happy. You know, those seizures were the worst. I've stabilized. I don't want to rock the boat, you know, and they're driving implications. I need to drive to work. I've got kids, um, and I don't want to risk it. Um, other people might say, no, you know, the seizures, I didn't have that many. They were, you know, they were kind of not the big, bad, shaking kind, um driving it i i can forgo driving for a little bit if i have another one you know i'll just go back on and you know geez i you know i'm kind of you know you're you know that there are all kinds of side effects you know i'm a little fuzzy thinking having a little word finding trouble i think it's from the medication so the balance is just going to be so different from person to person and some of my future work i hope will be aimed at kind of you know parsing through, you know, kind of what, what preferences, what people, what ranges of seizure risk, um, it does the, the good outweigh the bad or vice versa.
0: And it's interesting, because what some people think is good, or bad, other people don't, right? It's completely and utterly individual.
1: Yeah, no, that's totally true. The, the way that I kind of, you know, in, in trials, we, um, when you randomize people in a clinical study to treatment A or treatment B, there's generally a primary outcome, Like we specify this is the thing that this trial is most important, but but every patient's primary outcome is different. You know, your primary outcome might be, I never want to have a seizure again. Someone else's primary outcome, may be, I never want to take another medication again. (laughs) So, so just, just what you're saying.
0: I'm really glad that you're actually researching this because it's something that is, uh, I don't know, often comes up in conversation between patients. Um, but often you don't necessarily have enough time to have that full in-depth conversation with your clinician.
1: And so, you know, I think the the point of my work is not to say that, you know, people are on so many drugs and, you know, people should come off their seizure medicines because, uh, as I say, it's a Jekyll and Hyde moment where, mm. you know, there's good and the bad and everyone's cal- everyone's calculus is going to be different. But I do think that it's really useful to just describe the current state of things, describe the medications that people are taking, and for patients, um, you know, to really, you know, feel like their medications are helping them, um, and just to kind of, you know, for the withdrawal discontinuation decision, just to be aware that some people with epilepsy and medications, you know, may- maybe you don't have to take medications forever, and it's just something that you probably some people have maybe even never talked to their doctor about, you know, just even to have the conversation like I didn't even know this was possible I just thought that I would you know be taking my seizure medicine forever and ever and you know that that could be the case but just have you ever had the conversation I
0: also I'd like to add if anybody is thinking or your loved one might be thinking or your patient might be thinking of just stopping your drugs don't do it you, and I can speak from personal experience. I was going through a bit of a meltdown uh, many years ago, and I did it, even though I knew I shouldn't do it. And I was basically saying, seizures, come here, please. That was fun. Not. <laughs> please don't do it, because you not just increase your risk of seizures, but also SUDEP even. So yeah, it's just, it's got to be managed, right?
1: Absolutely. That's right. Talk, you know, it's a conversation with your doctor about kind of what's the smartest thing for you.
0: Oh, so one other thing what we were going to mention was, well, terminology. Uh, for instance, the term adherence or compliance. You've um, done some work on, well, not just what the definitions are, but well go into more detail for us.
1: Yeah, I've done uh, a few recent papers about medication adherence. Um, so, you know, the terminology is has swung more towards the word adherence compared to compliance. Adherence is, you know, there, there's kind of a little bit of a negative connotation to compliance. You know, you will do as you are told, yeah, which is really nice. Not... If they
0: say you are non-compliant, I'm like, I didn't do it on purpose, sorry. You
1: know, <laughs> right. You know, you know, me, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, but adherence implies that a recommendation is made. The patient has understood that recommendation clearly, which is, you know, not always a, not always a given and the patient agrees that that is the best thing for them. So there is a multiple step thing. I understand the recommendation, I agree it's a good idea, but then still at that point, you know, medications fall through the cracks because of either forgetting pills or having trouble, you know, logistical things or couldn't refill them. And there there are just all kinds of reasons why, um, you know, people may may or may not adhere to their medications. But, you, you know, you're right. The terminology is kind of like, you know, so what, you know, potato, potato, but on the other hand, it's like, you want to, you want to be talking about the right thing in the right way. So for example, I published a paper recently, two papers recently, one of which uh, was about uh, in people with newly diagnosed epilepsy, I took 25,000 people, and I followed them um, to see what their adherence to seizure medications will be like. And, you know, the database is, it's again, Medicare, just because that's kind of I've been doing a lot of work recently in that database, and so the population is pretty particular. Um, And what you have is uh, fills, medication fills, and so I counted up the percent of days when when they actually had pills, so that was kind of my definition of adherence, just, you know, what percent of days do you actually have medication, and then I took that a few steps further where sometimes when people study adherence, they kind of just dichotomize it into a yes-no thing. You know good bad but it's not that simple it's like a it's not a black and white thing and then also sometimes in a, in a lot of previous adherence work it has just been at a single moment in time or a single time period but adherence can change and so those are a couple of the innovations that i did in this recent work which was um trajectories and so i grouped people into kind of uh uh, the group of patients that would that started strong, that had a you know full pill supply and stayed there throughout several years, compared to people who started filling their pills consistently and then dropped off, compared to the reverse, people who you know were really you know inconsistently filling their pills throughout, and the people who were inconsistently filling their pills and then and then picked it up uh, kind of over time. So I define these four different trajectories of adherence to anti-seizure medications. Uh, and in the 25,000 people that I studied uh, with new epilepsy, 60% of them were in this early adherence group, um, which is the people who were consistently filling, which is good, but that also means that of people who, where you think they actually have epilepsy and, you know, a reason to be on seizure medications, 40% of them were in the other groups. Um, so, you know, kinda of my work is, you know, on both sides of the aisle. You know, on one side. Some of my work is about, you know, polypharmacy and, you know, sometimes talking about your doctor about whether whether uh considering withdrawing medication eventually um might be the right choice for you. But some of my other work has been, you know, acknowledging seizure medicines are helpful. You know, you talked about SUDEP, um seizure medications reduce injuries and seizures and you know suit up and hospitalizations and all kinds of potential downsides, and so it's kind of a wake up call on, on both sides, I think, but on the other hand it's it's not entirely new. I mean a lot of literature is you know as already shown there's so many barriers that can get in the way if people filling in their medications and um, I think it's kind of interesting though to map these four different trajectories kind of you know because it kind of tells a different story, so the the person who starts high and stays high they you know maybe they ha they really believe they have a reason to be on the medication appropriately so, and you know they're they're motivated to keep filling the medication. people who um kind of start lower and then and then pick it up, you know you could potentially tell a story there about how someone you know the reason that people might say "I don't know if I need this yet i you know I want to wait, I want to see." So, you know, there are just all kinds of things, and it's with these claims databases that it's all such a high level in terms of just- Right, we don't know the reasons necessarily for- the next steps are really, yeah, the reasons, you know, the kind of more granular data, this is hypothesis generating. Um, There are a couple other interesting findings from that that particular paper. One was that having a neurologist was associated with really good adherence, um, being in that kind of early and continued adherence group And so, you know, I think that's a really interesting finding because it's, it's actionable, um, potentially, but it's also interesting because there's so many different possible explanations. So one possible explanation is that, you know, neurologists have value, specialists have value in terms of counseling their patients. This is why you, why I think you should be on this medication. And then, you know, detecting when people are on maybe not the right medication for them and switching them to something that might be, you know, a better choice, so one, one possibility is, is causality. Um, neurologist, you know, helps. Another possibility is that more motivated people seek out neurologist care, and therefore, it's a non-causal relationship, whereby it's you know, it's just the the people who get into your study, and and happen to, you know, and decide to see a neurologist. So, there, with any with any good study, it answers some things and. It, and it raises yeah, even more questions for the next step in the in the research process.
0: You've got um, another thing that you were going to mention or just explain um, about the threefold increased physical disability rate amongst people with epilepsy. This is you know uh, this is this is a really big deal. Please tell us about that.
1: As I said, I uh, I, I gave Tori her homework to read and she's done it. <laughs> a plus. <laughs> hey. Um, so another. Um, Set of studies that I did was about defining the prevalence of physical disability in people with epilepsy. So, in that study, I used NHANES data. Um, so, that's the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. That's, uh, so, in the US, they, um, this is a really long standing survey, and they, they sample people um, across the US in different communities in such a way that you can actually generalize results to the whole country. So it's a really neat in terms of its survey design and they send out a, a truck and examination unit up, you know, and they just go around the whole country. So it's great for saying like, what's the prevalence of this and that and that. They do all kinds of common stuff. And they have a set of you know physical limitations questions. So they, um, they ask people questions about, do you have trouble getting upstairs and trouble sitting for a long time and trouble standing and trouble walking and how far can you walk? and they do a couple objective measures too. Um, So I use these data for for two things. Uh, The the first study was um, to compare physical disability in people with epilepsy compared to people without epilepsy. Again, kind of just, you know, in the business of just describing the state of things to understand what's a problem. Um, And as you say, I found that people with epilepsy that i defined as um, people who reported being treated with a seizure medication and and some other methods to it so i had 100 200 people with epilepsy and there are thousands and thousands of people without epilepsy Um, and i found that the people with epilepsy or at least being treated for seizures reported threefold increased in their in physical disabilities compared to everyone else which is all these measures that you're talking about um like standing and walking and lifting and grabbing and just you know all the things you've got to do you know to just to just to get by and take care of yourself and there are a lot of reasons um what you know some the epilepsy itself you know is that that is that's probably not the primary reason here you know because on a day-to-day basis you know, the, the, it depends on possibly, the person, right? You know, it, it, if like, got
0: it's that, epilepsy or not. It depends on the person. It and...
1: depends on the thing. You know, certainly, yes, seizures. And you know, seizures are directly responsible for you not driving. But I, that wasn't one of the um, the questions. So, people with seizures have stroke. And People with seizures have you know uh, developmental abnormalities, and they've had seizures their whole lives, or you know, cerebral palsy, and you know, pain conditions, and there's so many things that, you know, or you can have a seizure and hurt yourself, injure yourself, and you can have physical. There are just, you know, so many different pathways.
0: You just made me think of one example of how it can be diff- difficult, I think, sometimes to measure the impact on a person's quality of life. And yeah. like, for instance, if you've got a really supportive, loving family who are totally with you, and say you have um, disease, physical comorbidities in addition to the epilepsy, but they are there for you and they support you, you're likely, generally speaking, to be a bit more content than somebody who is obviously generalizing, but somebody who did not have that support. And so physically, you could, and neurologically, you could be identical, in inverted commas, but how you feel is completely and utterly different. So how do you measure that?
1: I think your point is that there are a lot of things that are not always measured in research that that would be great if we do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things like, for example, with the with, with um, withdrawal post post withdrawal seizure prediction, lifestyle factors we often don't measure in these trials like, you know, sleep and mood and hygiene and alcohol intake and there are all kinds of things that would make our risk predictions better to tailor our risk predictions to that individual and all the all the other things that influence the risk other than the EEGs you know, and, and number of seizures that, that are things that we do typically capture. Um, for adherence and polypharmacy and quality of life, the things that you're talking about are really important too in terms of your social support that very much tie into, you know, do you have a buddy buddy system that can kind of hold you accountable to actually making sure that you're taking medications, Wolfman, right? and yeah. asking the right questions <laughs> to your doctor. So I, I always do find it helpful when, you know, patients bring in uh a spouse or a friend or someone else who can kind of you know just provide some additional input uh, and remember the things that the doctor is saying and provide some comments about you know what's this person how are they doing you know what's their quality of life what what are the things that they've told you that are most important to them when the person says oh I totally forgot I'm so glad you reminded me to say that so well
0: sometimes I think people can be a bit nervous to say something they I mean they we should should never but be nervous or a bit embarrassed well actually this happened or I went out on the lash this night uh, the other night and yes I had seizures and I kind of blame myself but they're too embarrassed to say it so if you have somebody that you trust that can come with you um, and another thing also is like I know somebody who was unfortunately in repeat status epilepticus on and off for about a month it was horrific Um, and she thought she'd had four seizures. And she'd had in the twenties, but she didn't know um, because of her lack of consciousness. So it's really can be extraordinarily useful, almost crucial, in, in you know, if I can use that word, in getting um, the most effective treatment. Because if you present this information to your neurologist,
1: yeah, I mean epilepsy is something that it, it, it's interesting that we study an organ system that that is aware of itself. You know the the brain the brain studies itself. Um, so we just we ask for symptoms, but if someone can't describe them because they were unconscious, it's just, it just does make it harder to you know to to care for the person unless we have a really good account from a buddy, from a friend, from a witness, uh, from a video recording. The videos can um, be
0: great, huh?
1: You know, that, those are all useful. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I I think certainly they're all there are all kinds of things that people are kind of too embarrassed to say and you know but i but i hope that any patients who are watching this are encouraged to be really honest with their doctor about you know this is this is why i miss pills you know i miss them sometimes and i admit that and i realize that you know no one's perfect and i'm doing the best i can and here are the here are the reasons you know this is I, either the reason is I just forget, or I don't have a good system, or I need a buddy, or I'm not sure that I need them, or I'm having side effects and I want to talk about if there are other options for me. Um, so, you know, all these things I think tie into my work that I've been doing, although I admit that a lot of the work that I'm doing is kind of from a, from a higher level that doesn't tap into all these details, um, you know, But but in future work, I think it would be great to do so.
0: Indeed. And just a tip for anybody who um, has epilepsy um, or a family member has it, or even actually patients of yours, pillboxes. I know they sound so, so like simple, but I kid you not, that has saved me from so many seizures. And I've got a really nice slick one that I got from like online. And I like, it was, it was more money than an average one, but like, darling, I could put it in a briefcase and you wouldn't know.
1: Yeah. No, I've heard from more than one patient, um, you know, time point one, I can't remember my pills. Time point two, I got a pill box and I'm 100%. Yeah. Reminders on
0: your Um, phone.
1: So really, you know, just kind of laying it out, getting the rhythm down. it, It can be really helpful. That's assuming that the problem is forgetting, you know, of course, that's only kind of one, one pathway towards people not taking their medications.
0: Yeah. There are, Many, many others, and uh, we won't go into politics, but that, you know, <laughs> that that can uh, be, there can be issues there too. Um, so if anybody wants to get in touch with you, um, I will provide links to your work underneath this video, or underneath this podcast. Um, are you anywhere specific if anybody wants to get in touch or wants to learn more about your work?
1: I do have an email address for, you know, certainly for researchers who are interested in collaborating, or asking questions. I'm as you see, I'm really happy to talk about my work because I'm very excited about a lot of the things that, that I've been doing and I am hope to do in the future.
0: Well, And from a person with epilepsy, a patient perspective, thank you very much. It provides us a lot with hope, you know, and um, it's really good to have insight into what motivates you and keeps you going. Um, and together we can achieve a whole lot more. Hey, I'll forget what you have said, but you've given me the links to the papers and everyone else can have them too so that we can, uh, we can read up on it again once we forget. So...